Good morning. On April 10th, 1963, the Thresher, which was one of the newer nuclear submarines in the American arsenal, it sank off of the coast of New England. At about 7.47 in the morning, it began a deep dive, and about an hour later, it was struggling with difficulty to come back to the surface. And ultimately, it fell below crush depth. There were 129 sailors on board that submarine, and all of them, of course, died. They were sending back messages, and the last message that reached the surface outside of them simply said, Is there any hope? I don't know that the world knows how to ask that question or to put it in those words, but that's the condition of heart and thought of a world all around us. You know, God has gone to supernatural strengths to make sure to it that we can live in this life with hope. There's, of all people on this earth, no reason for a child of God to ever echo the cry and the call of those sailors to say, is there any hope? As we examine this great subject of the Bible, it's of interest to see that this is a word that shows up frequently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word hope is found 80 times in the Old Testament and in those 39 books. It's interesting to me that the word is found at the earliest era of time. Job says or speaks of hope. And it goes all the way to the end of Old Testament times with the prophet Zechariah. And so humanity from the beginning of Old Testament time to the end are asking about this hope. And hope is defined as an earnest expectation and an eager anticipation. What I find very interesting is that individuals were seeking and holding on to hope at a time in which you think that they would not. Job is racked with suffering. And in Job 13 and verse 15, he would still say, Though he slay me, yet I would hope in him. In the throes of of captivity, many hundreds of years later, Jeremiah would say, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Lamentations 3 and verse 24. And in the dark days of the prophet Micah, as Israel is hurtling headlong toward its captivity and its destruction, Micah would say in Micah chapter 7 and verse 7, I will wait or I will hope in the God of my salvation. For the Old Testament saint, hope was expectation and belief that help is coming. When you move over into the New Testament, you'll find that there's only one word that is seen that is translated hope and it's found 53 times. And as we examine that word in the New Testament, we find that it is an idea of a confident expectation concerning fulfillment. And if we go to examine where the Bible talks about hope, we're going to see how it propels along the people of God in difficult times. And there are places where we can go in the Bible to examine in the New Testament the subject of hope. There are books that center around the theme of hope. For example, the book of Romans says so much about hope as we saw as Dwight read to us so well a moment ago in Romans chapter 8. 
We also see hope as it is expounded to us in the book that tells us that Jesus is the supreme one in the book of Colossians and in the book of 1 Peter where God's people are struggling and suffering for living the right way. You'll find an emphasis on hope. But there's another book, a book that we don't as often look at in the New Testament that still shares this message of hope with us. It is the longest sermon in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, according to Hebrews 13 and verse 22, is an exhortation. It's a sermon. It is an appeal from the beginning to the end for us to see Christ as the way to make it through this life. And so in order to fulfill that, what the Hebrews writer does is he goes back to the Old Testament and he quotes it repeatedly. And in quoting it, he says, this is all pointing ahead to Jesus. All the hope that Job and Zechariah and everybody in between was looking for is realized in Jesus. And as a result of this, what we see is, is that hope is not only the best way in Christ, is not the, only the better way to live, it's the only way to live. And so there's an interesting thing that the Hebrews writer does as he works through his sermon and gives us characteristics of hope. What I'd like for you to do is to walk with me for the next few moments through the book of Hebrews as we ask ourselves and answer the question, what is biblical hope? And we're going to see it in the things that the writer says about it in the book of Hebrews. First of all, as we walk through the book of Hebrews, we see that hope is something that we can boast in. We see this idea in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 6. And as we come to Hebrews chapter 3, we are reminded that the, the preacher, the writer of the book of Hebrews, is presenting his case that Jesus is better, better than anything else. And as a part of this, Jesus is the better high priest. It is the longest single argument in the book of Hebrews. It starts in chapter 3 and verse 1 and it goes all the way into chapter 10. When we think about who the, uh, that priest would be, a priest is a representative to God. The high priest is the one who offers the sacrifice. And of course Jesus is better because he's the better offerer because he does so sinlessly and he's the better sacrifice. He is the sinless sacrifice who is placed in our place. And so in the midst of this, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, the writer of Hebrews is asking those brethren of this heavenly calling to consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And he says that Moses was faithful as a servant in the house of God, but Jesus is better because he is a son over that house. And that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, even so much as the builder of the house is worthy of more glory or honor than the house itself. Every house is built by some man, and he who builds all things is Christ. Again, Moses was uh, faithful as a servant in his house so that those things that were spoken could be revealed later on. But Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we will, he says at the end of that verse, hold fast and a boast, that boast of hope firm until the end. As he describes Jesus as the great high priest that we can have confidence through, he says something that may catch our atten attention. He says we boast in the hope of Jesus firm unto the end. I don't know how that catches you, but you know, if you were raised in a home like I was, boasting was not something that was really smiled upon. It was not something that we were supposed to do. And the New Testament and other places is as much as concerned that we don't boast in human things. 
You might think in terms of what the Bible says in Romans 4 in verse 2, that we're not to boast in our works. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16, preachers were not to, are not to boast in our preaching. And in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, we're not to boast in the sins of other people. In James chapter 4 and verse 16, we're not to boast in our arrogance. And so there's a clear message in the New Testament that there are some things that we should not put undue confidence in, brag in, have pride in because it's sinful. But I think that what the Hebrews writer is saying here in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 is the same kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 when he says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The reason we boast in this hope firm unto the end is because we're boasting in what God is able to do. The Hebrews writer is saying this one who goes between you and God is one that you can place your hope in because it's substantial. It holds up. And so as we think about what he's saying here is it's firm. This hope firm unto the end. I don't know where I've shared this before, but uh, it is it, it, something that I always think of when our middle son Dale preaching, a, a gospel preacher and an expectant father, but not that long ago, was a wannabe Tom Sawyer. And so he and his brother decided that they wanted to float a raft. They'd been watching a Bear Grylls and they wanted to duplicate that. And so they decided that they needed a raft. Kathy and I were out of town and so the boys decided, after not being able to build one, that they would take the tabletop off of our picnic table, one of those plank tables. And they carried it the half mile across from our house over to what was called the Stonehouse Park in which there were several lakes. By the way, we didn't know about this until it was his opening illustration in his senior sermon at Bear Valley. As he said, to begin to talk about that, he says that he and Carl put themselves on top of that. They were going to float all the way across that, that lake. It took them about three seconds before they realized that that was a terrible plan. That wood was too heavy and it began to sink and they realized that if they didn't get off of it, that they were going to sink too. You know, I think about what it is that we put our hope and our confidence in and so often it's in something that's not going to make it. And so the Bible constantly is telling us, you can put your hope in this, but don't boast in your hope in this. The David says in Psalm 20 and verse 7 that some individuals, they boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 3 and verse 23, in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And in Isaiah 31 and verse 1, Isaiah warns that the people were putting their hope in military alliances and in weapons of war instead of in God who was going to deliver them. When we think about the hope that the Hebrews writer is at the beginning of this sermon trying to get us to see, he is showing us that in the battles of doubt and discouragement and duress that we can boast in this sure foundation. You can step on that hope. It's going to make it. Nothing is going to cause it to sink. So as we look through Hebrews, we see that hope can be defined in this characteristic in that it is something that we boast in. But also we find that this hope is characterized as something that we can trust in. You move on in this same argument that he's making into Hebrews chapter 6. And at the beginning of this chapter, the Hebrews writer is referring the people back to some of their number who used to be faithful and used to be among them 
And yet because of the difficulties of life, they had turned their back on Christ and they had gone back from whence they had come. And he characterizes why this probably happened. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, he they were not deep Bible students. Their knowledge of God's word was not enough to keep them from falling away. But added to that, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, he indicates that they were not grateful. And that lack of gratitude in their spiritual lives caused them to give up hope. But I love what the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 6. He says, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11, he talks about this hope that they are trusting in. When we see hope characterized, we see that it is a hope that we can trust in no matter what happens. When we think about how this world is trying to take hope away from us through sin and iniquity, we find the antidote right here from the Hebrews writer that we can hang on, we can hold on when our hope is tested. You can trust in hope, even when hope is hard to find. There was a woman by the name of Nadia Kajina. She lived in the Soviet Union shortly after the establishment of communism. And she was married to a famous poet by the name of Osep Mendelstam. And they were protesting what they saw as the evils of that government. And as they did so, Osep decided to use his abilities as a poet. And he wrote a poem condemning Stalin. As he wrote it, he called it his suicide note. And sure enough, he was arrested. And four years later, he was killed in prison. Near the end of her life, Nadia Kajina wrote two books a book entitled Hope Against Hope, and another book called Hope Abandoned. I don't know if we have any Russian speakers here today, but there's an irony in the writing of these books because the name Nadia in Russian means hope. And she's writing about books about there being a hopeless situation and that this hope was seemingly out of reach, but she wrote so that those in the future could have a better hope. Do you realize how often that's what's happening in the New Testament? When I think about the Apostle Peter and how he writes to the Christians who are struggling in their faith. We mentioned 1 Peter a moment ago. And Peter writes to Christians who are seen as insignificant, as seen as inadequate, who are seen as inadequate by all the people around them. And yet as the writer Peter reaches out to them, he talks about the great hope that they have. He says what you have is a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. It is a hope that's complete, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. It's a hope in God, 1 Peter 1, 21, and 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. It is a reasonable hope, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. He's trying to help them to see that this hope would stand, even if it was stood against. And what's interesting to me is, is that Peter writes this epistle to several provinces. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and one of the provinces that he writes to is Bithynia. And in Bithynia, about 50 years after Peter writes this letter, there's going to be a wicked governor by the name of Pliny. Pliny, who is well known for his writings about the Christian, a witness to Christianity, but not a favorable witness. He's a hostile witness. And he writes to Trajan, the emperor at the time, and he says that he is being very successful in exterminating these Christians. And so do you think that this letter that those folks in that province had just gotten from Peter not long ago helped them 
as they were being marginalized, as they were being persecuted for their faith, the Hebrews writer is writing in a similar situation. He is encouraging them to hold up under difficult times. What is biblical hope? It is something that we can boast in, that we can put our confidence in. It is also something that we can trust in, even when it seems like that's elusive and the conditions are not favorable. But then third, I'd like you to notice with me as we walk through Hebrews that in the third place we have that idea that hope is something that we hold on to. In Hebrews chapter 6, in that same context, in verse 18 and 19, we see that we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. When we look at this idea that hope is something to hold on to, we are reminded in the context that we may have to hold on for a while. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 14, Abraham has a promise that he's waiting so long for God to fulfill. And while he's waiting for God to fulfill it, he's still hanging on to that hope. But why? Because of God and who he is. If you look at verse 17 through 19, you see God, his, his character is unimpeachable. It's impossible for God to lie. This hope is so strong because of what it is that we hold on to. It's an anchor. You know, as I think about all this nautical terminology, I know we have veterans. uh, You have probably heard about the uh, USS Gerald Ford. It is the latest aircraft carrier in the U.S. fleet. It is an incredible vessel. It's 1,092 feet long. Not only that, it can accommodate 5,500 of a crew at once. 75 aircraft or more at one time. And you can imagine the anchor and chain system that it has to have. The chain extends 1,440 feet, almost a quarter of a mile. And not only that, the anchor itself weighs 15 tons. Each individual chain link in that chain weighs 138 pounds. But that's nothing compared to the Triple E container ship. It is 1,300 feet long. It is 20 stories high. And it also has a 15-ton anchor. Each individual chain link in that chain system is 500 pounds. Now suppose you find yourself out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you're right over the Mariana Trench. Would you rather be in one of those or in a rowboat? Makes a difference. You know, we would think that if I'm going to be in a gale, a storm of that kind of proportion, maybe even of hurricanic nature, I would want to be in something that secure. And yet I remind myself that the largest battleships that were ever constructed, the Yamato and the Musashi, were sunk in World War II. How about the SS El Faro? Another cargo ship, it was uh, steaming into the eye wall of Hurricane Joaquin just a few years ago. And in the gale force winds, it was sunk, this 800-foot long ship. And of course, the Titanic reminds us that there is no unsinkable ship. But we have an unsinkable hope because of what it's made of. The anchor that we have is made of God's integrity. It's made of the Word of God. You know, even death as it stands against us cannot keep us, cannot loosen that anchor. I think about my favorite New Testament passage has got to be Romans chapter 8. And it reminds us of what kind of an anchor of hope that we have. 
Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are made more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, or height, or depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Jesus Christ is preeminent, Hebrews 2 and verse 10. He is preexistent, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12. He is foremost and He is first. He went before us so that we can go through Him. And so the Hebrews writer is telling us that we have this hope that's defined in terms of the fact that it's something that we can hold on to. But then fourth, it is something that we find ourselves able to approach God by. Now over in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19, we have the next statement of hope. And that there is one figure that ties this, who serves as a bridge really, to tie us between this statement of hope and the last statement of hope in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. It's this enigmatic priest by the name of Melchizedek. He's only mentioned in four chapters of the Bible. And so the Hebrews writer tells us about him. He says, I want to tell you more about him to the folks that he's preaching to. He says, but you're not able to bear it now. In other words, you need to brush up on your Melchizedek history. But let me give you a little bit of it anyway. He says that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. He illustrates in a shadowy way, not a complete way, what Jesus is in perfection. And he begins to walk through what that means. In Hebrews chapter uh, 6 and verse 20, he is a priest forever. The Hebrews writer says he having having neither uh, ancestor or descendant. He continues in that job forever. Jesus is a priest forever. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, Melchizedek is a priest who is also a king. And of course, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4 through verse 9, you have uh, this priest who is superior. He's greater than the Levitical priest. And of course, Jesus is the greatest high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 10, he is before the Levitical priesthood. And of course, Jesus is before all. John chapter 1 and verse 1. Hebrews 7 and verse 16, he is a high priest by means of an indestructible life. And of course, that's Jesus embodied. And he is a high priest according to the oath of God, Hebrews 7, verse 20 and 21. And it's in the midst of this history lesson that the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 20, with that old covenant being cast aside, we have a hope by which we can draw near to God. Now to catch the significance of that, I want you to walk with me back to the Old Testament for a moment. There are three characters about which special statements are made. Abraham, 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7, is called the friend of God. Can you imagine your name being preserved for thousands of years of history and all that's said simply by summation is he or she is the friend of God. How about by inspiration? You have Moses who's writing, it's true, but he's saying it of himself. He says that God spoke to Moses face to face as one man speaks to his friend. Exodus 33 and verse 11. That God chose to interact with you in that most intimate way. 
Several times it's said about David, what Paul says in his sermon to Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13 and verse 22, he says that David was a man after God's own heart. Three men whose relationship with God was so exceptional that God calls them by name. And as he speaks about that nearness, that closeness that they had, we think about what possibility do we have? You know, you live in a world where you are very likely, at least to the majority of the world, you're, it's as if you don't exist. Nobody knows you. You're anonymous. But do you know what the Hebrews writer says? The Hebrews writer says that there is the great one, the great high priest, Hebrews 7 and verse 25, whoever lives to make intercession for you, that's how much you mean to him. Or what about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where it says that we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in time of need. The Hebrews writer is saying to us as we try to navigate our way through this world that we get to draw near to God and that strengthens our hope. Our hope exists because we can have that kind of a relationship with him. But then as we look through the the book of Hebrews, we find a fifth statement. And that is that we have in this hope, hope something that we don't waver in. Now, this argument about the great high priest, we said it started in chapter 3. And he begins to bring that argument to a close in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 19. As the Hebrews writer is talking about that priest who has consecrated us uh, to a new and living way through the veil that is to say is flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. If you'll notice in your translation, there are several exhortations that follow that. They all start with the same word in the original language that's translated into a phrase, let us. And these are all the conclusions of the fact that Jesus is the great high priest. Because he is, because we have this priest... Verse 21, let us do several things. And one of the things he says for us to do, he encourages us to do, is to draw near with a full assurance of faith, with an unwavering hope. Your your version may say unswerving. It means changeless with regard to faith. It's only found, this one verse, in all of the New Testament. And Freiburg says that it means bending to neither side. And so as you're being assaulted from different directions, you're not going to crush or cave in. I think it's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8 when he says we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. So the Hebrews writer is showing us that we have in this hope something that we can hang on to and that will not deter us no matter which way the wind blows, that we're going to hold up. It's unswerving, it's unbending. You know, when your wife tells you not to do something, you should listen to her, but I told her I was going to do it anyway, so she's not surprised. It was Kathy that pointed something out to me that I had not seen. You know, sometimes people say, hey, did your wife write that sermon? And if they think it was any good, and if it was good, probably Kathy wrote that. In Acts chapter 27, she pointed out something about a shipwreck that was going to occur. And an idea that is set forth in Acts chapter 27 Do you remember that Paul is on his way to Rome? And as he is, they encounter the Eurycliden, this storm, this wind. And as the result of that, 
the pilot and the captain, before the ship is going to wreck, they begin to lighten their load. They, they, they cut loose the anchors. They, they loosen the ropes on the rudder and they set the foresail to the wind and they make for the beach. Now, as they do that, God's predetermined that none of them are going to die. They're going to perish in this. But they are to head safely toward shore, verse 40. And so as the pilot and the captain try to get that ship to shore, they run up upon a reef and the ship begins to break apart. And so the instructions are given. If you can swim, swim for shore. Otherwise, float on the, uh, the planks or the other parts of the ship. And so they headed for the beach, verse 44. There's this idea of determination. Now you think about if you were on that ship and you were given that assurance... And the instructions were, if you'll just make it for the beach, just head for the shore, you're going to get there. Whether you could swim or not, if you're now floating or swimming, would you head back out into the ocean or would you make your way toward shore? There's this picture that in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, we find this encouragement to us in our hope to make sure that it is not swerving, that we don't change our gaze, that no matter what's happening in our life, we're making it for sure. We're heading toward heaven, and nothing is going to stop us from that. But may I suggest there are going to be times when that shipwreck comes. There are going to be times when you feel like an Olympic swimmer with the wind to your back. And there's going to be times when you feel like you're holding on to what amounts to a toothpick in the middle of the ocean. The, the picture's the same. Head for shore. The Hebrews writer's encouraging them in the midst of some who had turned their back on Christ that you don't waver in this. You don't swerve from your objective. That's hope. Then there's a sixth characteristic of hope, and we find it just a little bit later on. In fact, it's probably in the text in Hebrews that we know the best. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, we see that hope is something that you believe in. We know the definition here, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now that word substance is a very interesting word. It was a scientific word and later it became a philosophical term. It had a, a figurative use. But the word substance referred to the dregs or the sediment that would be in a, a glass of liquid. And so the sediment that drops to the bottom of a jar of water or a jar of wine or residue. Do you see the picture that the Hebrews writer is painting? If you'll see that, that jar, that liquid as hope, and what happens is that something settles down because of hope to the bottom, and it's faith. And that faith is what prompted these individuals to act in obedience. Usually when we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, we're pointing out the idea of faith and what faith caused these individuals to do, and I think that's good. I think it's a right emphasis. But have you ever stopped to think, what was it that precipitated the faith? And if you'll walk through Hebrews chapter 11, see how much faith was prompted or driven by their hope. Noah, being warned of things not yet seen, with reverence and fear, prepared the ark. Hebrews 11 and verse 7. Abraham left his country and he went far away in a foreign land in hope of an inheritance that was promised him in verse 8 through 10. Moses' parents, they hid him from the Pharaoh. Why? Because they hoped that he would be saved from death. Moses, 
He forsook the pleasures of sin for a season in hope of what would happen because of that decision of faith. Rahab, she received the spies and she sent them out another way in hope that when the Israelite spies returned that she was going to be spared along with the Israelites. You see, it's tied throughout. It's not surprising then that when we're talking about hope, that the Hebrews writer's been talking about promises. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36, don't give up with regard to these promises. Don't shrink back to destruction, verse uh, 39 of chapter 10. And then you get to chapter 11. And you'll find that Abraham and Sarah did what they did because they believed in the promises of God, verse 7 through 9. In a more general sense, we see all of these who acted they, in faith, they obtained promises, verse 32 and 33. And we see that those who died in faith did not receive what was promised because there was something better with regard to us, verse 39 and 40. The point of the Hebrews writer is that God has made promises. Are you placing your hope in that? If you do, what's going to settle to the bottom is faith. And that faith will cause you to do whatever it is that God wants you to do. What caused them to be able to to survive? You know, the Hebrews writer looks back to these Christians at the beginning of their Christian life and he commends them. He says that you went through this great conflict of sufferings, verse uh, chapter 10 and verse 32. You uh, joyfully allowed your property to be seized, verse 33. You uh, joined in with those who were persecuted and you received this persecution yourself. And so what I want you to do is to hold fast. Don't let go, no matter what, to this faith. Let it, let it cause you to believe. And so as we look at this hope as it's defined for us, it is something that we can boast in. Something that we can trust in. It is something that we can hold on to. It's something that we can approach God by. It's something that we will not waver in. And it's something that we believe in. Of all times, now is the time for us to ask, what should we place our hope in? Should we place our hope in economic prosperity? All we got to do is look at the fluctuating stock market uh, line as it continues to go up and down. Think about the cost of inflation or think about energy prices. We live in a world in which there is great economic uncertainty. Our lifetime, most of us can't remember calamitous examples of that like some of our forefathers a hundred years ago. We don't put our trust in economic prosperity. We don't put our trust in global or national or even regional peace because that can change so quickly. We don't put our trust in physical health. And we've had several reminders of this week of how quickly that can change. Our dear faithful Christian sisters who find themselves in health crises right now, all of them said the same thing. I was feeling fine one moment and then the next I was not. There's so many things that We might put our trust in that we should not. But why do you attend church services? Why do you come week after week? Why do you put your trust in something that you only believe because it's written in a book that's 2,000 plus years old? Why do you faithfully live the Christian life? It was the Spaniards whose national flag and motto had three words in Latin, ne plus Ultra. And it simply was translated, there's no more beyond. In the medieval period, it was thought that all that could be discovered was discovered. 
And beyond that lay dragons and boiling cauldrons and who knows what else. And so they stayed in their little place. And then men like Columbus and Cabral and Gilboa began to search. And of course the Spaniards were a big part of that. And so they changed their crest on their flag. And there's a lion with its claw ripping that word nay from the phrase. And their new motto was more beyond. As we think about this world, aren't we surrounded by people who say there's no more beyond? What a hopeless way to live. But Peter says the difference maker for the child of God, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, is a living hope. The Lion of Judah rips out that no and reminds us there is more beyond this life. Your hope is built on something more, on Jesus' blood. May I encourage you, if that's not where you have your hope placed, to realize that will never disappoint. That will always get you through. This morning, maybe you've never put your trust and your hope in Christ. We review God's plan of salvation. So many in this room know it well. But God's made it so clear for us so that we will understand what it is that He wants us to do in response to the great gift of Jesus, the great high priest who's the sacrifice and the giver of the sacrifice. If we'll respond to that grace by believing that He is the Son of God and our Savior, if we will then act in that faith to repent of our sins, And to be baptized, he'll wash away our sins, add us to the body of Christ, give us a living hope no matter what. And if as a child of God you've lost your way with regard to that hope, he longs for your return, he wants you to come back. Maybe the things of this life, the matters that we mentioned a moment ago, have distracted you from the source of your hope and you want to return to that hope. Perhaps there's some public acknowledgement you need to make in that regard. If we can help you, If you need to respond, won't you do so right now as we stand and sing?